The triennial cycle today is largely based on the custom of the Yerushalmi, the custom of the rabbis of the land of Israel. And that custom was a seven-year cycle in which the Torah is read from beginning to end two times. So essentially, the Sidra cycle, the Torah reading cycle, not the Parsha cycle, but it was called the Sidra cycle, was a three and a half year cycle. And today, the triennial cycle that we use, rather than follow the traditional Sidra cycle, we want to make sure we're in the same Parsha as every other Kahila in the world. And so we do a third of the Parsha that other people may be doing the annual reading of for during an annual cycle. What exactly is the halakhic problem with the triennial cycle, it's a prohibition in halakha, which is very, very important. You can't skip when you're reading the Torah. It's defined in halakha as skipping verses or skipping chapters. So I can't just read and then decide, I think I'm going to skip a few and head to the next chapter. It doesn't apply when you have a different reading for the second scroll. That doesn't count as skipping. As the triennial cycle was sort of getting underway in, in, in the 70s and 80s, as we do it today, some congregations kept doing the maftir, the eighth section, the additional section, from the end of the Torah portion, because we were used to doing that. We could call back bar mitzvah kids, have them come back in a year, and they still knew their maftir and still remembered it, and it worked very well. But in 1987, the, the Committee on Jewish Laws and Standards of the Conservative Movement said, we think this may well violate, that one should not be skipping verses or chapters during the Torah reading, so to skip a few columns to read the end of the parsha is no longer appropriate. And although many congregations never heard of that ruling and uh, already had their systems in place, starting next Shabbat, we'll be going to that system, where if for the Maftir reading, unless it's a two-scroll day, we will be reading the Maftir from the seventh Aliyah, that we just read, and not skipping to a few columns to get to the end of the annual reading. In Madli Gimba Torah, it's a rule, but it's also a value. We are not a people of the homily lectionary. We don't receive instructions from a human panel on what we are to discuss, and by implication, what we are not to discuss. We don't walk into our house of worship and find out that this week we're going to study you must love your neighbor as yourself, but somehow we're never going to get around to the verses that make us deeply uncomfortable, such as those about sexual assault, or about vengeance, or about sexual or gender identity. And even when these are uncomfortable, pressing issues of our time. And perhaps there are no verses we'd rather skip a few of than those that we began with today. And Rabbi Susan Leader of Tiburon says this, the tradition is clear that we can't skip reading sections of the Torah simply because we find them problematic. All of the Torah is a part of our tradition, and skipping these sections would only rob us of the opportunity to grapple with them. But we, can't take, but we can take heart in knowing, she writes, that for millennia the rabbis have lived with this discomfort and developed their own halakhic coping mechanisms for addressing it. Allowing ourselves to be uncomfortable is one of the first steps we can take toward moving to a more just world. How a nation deals with its literature can show how it deals with its own history. And we as a religious civilization have inherited a literary and theological tradition with problematic aspects. We can choose to skip or to ignore these aspects, or we can transform these aspects into self-awareness and reflection. So in Madligim Torah, 
we have no right to skip our attention to verses. We must grapple with them and transform them into self-awareness and renewed calls for justice within this world. Talk about skipping verses in the Bible. A book called Parts of the Holy Bible Selected for the Use of Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands was published in 1807. There are only three extant copies. It's commonly called the Slave Bible. It was published three years after the Haitian Revolution ended. That revolution was the only slave revolt in history in which enslaved people successfully drove out their European oppressors and formed a new nation. And it increased American and European concern that the people they oppressed would one day rise up against them. It was printed on behalf of the Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves. The missionaries associated with the movement sought to teach enslaved Africans to read with the ultimate goal of introducing them to Christianity, but they had to be careful not to run afoul of those who were wary, particularly farmers in the, in the Indi East Indies, because of the revolutionary implications. The, West, the British West India Islands, modern-day Jamaica, Barbados, and Antigua formed the heart of England's overseas empire, after all, and it was powered by millions of enslaved Africans forced to work on sugar plantations. If your sweetness, like mine and my wife's, comes from watching Paul Dark on PBS, you will see issues in that serial drama raised in its final season. In the so-called slave Bible, about 90% of the so-called Old Testament is missing. 90% of the Hebrew Bible. Only about 50% of the Christian New Testament is missing. A typical Protestant edition of the Bible contains 66 books. By comparison, the reduced slave Bible contains only parts of 14 books. Gone was Jeremiah 22:13, Woe unto him that builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him not for his work. They included statements, however, such as from Ephesians, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, and do so with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart, as to Christ. So here we are. We just started Mishpatim. We start with slavery. A lot of it has to do with attributing protections and rights to slavery, but for many of us, why doesn't it eliminate it completely? It transforms it. As we all know, Maimonides and others say it's an intermediary stage to getting rid of it completely. But why not just get rid of it completely? So what did the slave Bible so-called do with today's parasha? Well, it did all of the Joseph story in Genesis from about five weeks ago and before. Why? Well, Joseph was a great slave. He accepted his lot in life and was rewarded for it. So the entire Joseph story gets included in the slave Bible. And its version of Genesis ends with Jacob happily joining him in Egypt. And then it eliminates the first 18 chapters of Exodus. There's no evil enslaving by Pharaoh. There's no condemnation of killing the other, including babies. There's no defining injustice in this world by enslavement. No gods appearing at the burning bush to say to Moses that God has felt the sufferings of the Israelites in their bondage. There's no God issuing orders to let my people go, and no ten plagues to punish the enslavers and free the slaves. 
No God's representative on earth defining himself as being a stranger in a strange land. Right from Joseph to the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, chapters 19 and 20. So today the parasha started with chapter 21. This about a slave and when you get a slave and what you can do with a slave and what a slave has rights about. So what did they pick and choose? None of it. They found all of it worrisome as potentially making slaves feel that they had rights and that they had protections. It was very likely that God's intention was for any kind of enslavement to be temporary and for them to grow, go free. So threatening his mishpatim, which we might today say is an embarrassment for its failure to end slavery that is eliminated wholly, it's too dangerous to assign to slaves the category of persons, too dangerous to presume that many could or would go free if they eliminated the obvious in Exodus, because after all, 21 verse 16, and he that steals a man and sells him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. The slave Bible skips Mishpatim and goes directly to the end of Deuteronomy chapter three. It has to do with the Ten Commandments being given again and the idea that we shall serve God and there are rewards and there are punishments. Earlier this month, the New York Times 1619 Project published a piece called, They Sold Human Beings Here. It reminds us that for hundreds of years, human beings were sold publicly in our cities and towns, often disrobed, almost always shackled, and commonly babies torn from their mothers in sight of all as they went to a different bidder. The article suggests that it is no accident that the very public locations of these market marketplaces are not marked, despite their historical longevity. In other words, we simply pick how much discussion and reminder we Americans are willing to have of our history, and we skip, and by skipping, eliminate the memories that are, that's a little too much. Don't have a sign on that building of what it used to be. And this editing does us no service. Psychologically, it doesn't do us a service, and it certainly doesn't help us in addressing injustice in our society today. We don't skip in reading the verses of the Torah. No human makes a lectionary to tell us where to put our focus. And what looks like a simple statement about Torah, about Torah service, holds a deep value. The value of holding all of it together and trusting ourselves that we are big enough to do so. The Torah is our identity in the past, the present, and the future because we keep all of the memories, even the painful ones. We are strong enough to have our present moment and our future contain all of our past memories. It is an act of courage and of love, and we are the stronger for it.